Earth Hermes Podcast, Ex Libris Edition. Welcome to books and events from the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome to our September Ex Libris edition of the Thos Hermes podcast. For the third time, we present to you a number of books in this new type of format. Welcome back. As most of you probably know, my name is Rudolf, and I am your host speaking to you from Europe from the outskirts of the lovely Austrian capital of Vienna. The Thos Hermes podcast brings to you every other week a one-hour interview with one of the most important figures and authors of the Western esoteric tradition. On top of that, once a month we now produce the Ex Libris edition, which you are listening to at the moment. All of this can be found on our website on www.thoughtshermes.com that is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com where you will find all the previous episodes, details about the podcast and myself and of course the show notes with the links which will help you to access the necessary background information directly and with no hassle. You can also find us on most podcast distribution channels like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spreaker, Clearcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, etc., etc. And for all of those who love YouTube, you can now also get all the episodes directly on our YouTube channel in an audio-only version, of course. While we are talking about direct access, this podcast uses chapter markings. So if your podcast listening device or software uses that feature, you can directly jump to the chapters of this episode by choosing or clicking. Easy, no? But I still hope you will be listening to this episode in full. It is worth it, I think. And if you like it, I would greatly appreciate if you became a supporter of this show by going on Patreon, choosing Thought Hermes podcast and become a patron. From $2 per episode, you can be part of the supporting community. Thanks to all those who have already chosen to do that. Please help to maintain the regularity and quality of this podcast by supporting it. Direct access links to our Patreon page and a donation button can be found on the homepage. I would also appreciate your feedback, of course, either through Facebook or Twitter, or also directly on our website where you can use free voicemail or our contact form. The email address is info at thoughtshermes.com. And here comes a message from our sponsor. 
Anathema Publishing Limited. Quality Occult Books and Contemporary Esoterica. Established in 2011, Anathema Publishing aims to provide superior literature in content and form by creating a triune relationship between publisher, author and reader. Anathema Publishing produces refined books for the true bibliophile on topics ranging from Gnosticism, traditional craft, alchemy, hermeticism, witchcraft, to Luciferian philosophy. www.anathemapublishing.com Now let's have a look on what you can expect in this episode. We will introduce you to four books about very different cultural backgrounds. This episode really shows the richness and diversity of the occult world and it asks for your curiosity and openness, which I really think is one thing that hermetic and occult people should have. In chapter one, I will present to you a beautiful and beautifully illustrated book by Ian A. Baker on Tibetan yoga. This volume really sums up all you want and need to know about this tradition, written by an initiate of Buddhist, Taoist and Hindu tantric lineages. Chapter 2 is always the moment where my friend Greg Kaminsky from the Occult of Personality podcast presents his choice for our episodes. This month he brings us Robert Podgorski's brand new book, the Sacred Alignments and Sigils, a breakthrough in occult studies that combines modern sigil techniques with traditional Enochian magic and appeals to all levels of ritual magic practitioners, explorers of consciousness, scholars, dowsers and tantric yoga practitioners. Also check out the link in the show notes to that chapter because Greg has interviewed Robert Podgorski a couple of years ago and this link to that interview will be found in the show notes. For chapter 3, we welcome someone who has already appeared on a lengthy interview in a regular episode a bit over a year ago on Thoth Hermes. Stephen E. Flowers. He chats with me for 10 minutes about his new book, The Magian Tarok, a revised and expanded edition of a former release where he sheds new light on one of the most important tools of us occult practitioners, the tarot and its origins. Also in the show notes here, a direct link to that interview I just mentioned. And finally, in chapter 4, you now already know that we always have a 20-minute talk for you. This time, I'm speaking to Erika Buenaflor. Erika is a curandera, or curanderix, as she prefers to say, as gender doesn't play a role in this particular American form of shamanism. We speak at the occasion of the publishing of her new book, Curanderismo Soul Retrieval, and we learn a lot about this type of work. 
So, from Tibet to the Americas, those exciting four new books should be able to inspire you to discover new things. Before we go right into all that, let's play a piece of music. I have chosen a piece which is dedicated to a very particular spirit in Western occultism, which is very dear to me and my work. Lilith. It, this piece is presented to us in music by Frater F., Frater F. is a musician and occultist from Sweden, and the text is by the great Thomas Carlson. After that piece of music, we will immediately delve into chapter one, but now listen to Lilith by Frater F. Chapter 1. 
maybe you are a bit surprised that on a podcast which is dedicated to the Western esoteric tradition, I present to you a book about Tibetan yoga. Well, at first this might indeed come unexpectedly, but I have a couple of good reasons for it. Even if this might academically not be completely accurate, I personally, and I'm not the only one, I see the Tibetan tradition, especially Bön, as something very closely related to the Western mind. Especially when you have an eye on this form of magic and shamanism and how it was then transported further and by whom, one finds a lot of interesting connections. Also, Tibetan traditions and yoga have become owes so much integrated in our modern Western practice that I see absolutely no reason why this, without any hint of cultural appropriation, should not be or become on the short run integral part of our traditions in the West. And if those reasons don't convince you, it is always good to have a look across the border and learn about important traditions and concepts. We will all only make our world more interesting and understanding. So here we go. Ian A. Baker, the author of the present book, released two months ago by Inner Traditions, studied literature and comparative religion in Oxford and at Columbia University. He is an initiate of Buddhism as well as Taoist and Hindu tantric lineages and has lived for more than 25 years in India and Nepal. He presents to us here a heavy volume of about 300 pages about the principles and practices of yoga in the Tibetan context. Heavy, the book, is not because of its size and thickness, but because it uses strong, glossy paper throughout and for a good reason. It shows 396 illustrations and photos in its pages, and the quality of them and of the book overall is wonderful. It is a joy to hold in hands for a bibliophile like me. The reproduction of the images, the colors and the layout are perfect. The range of those illustrations goes from rare works of art, like for example the murals of the one secret meditation chamber of the Dalai Lama, to ethnographic photography of contemporary Tibetan practitioners. As to the textual content, Ian Baker tries to connect the history and the roots of the Tibetan practice together with a practical manual for everyone interested in today's Tibetan tradition. Through his academic background, he is able to draw fully on scientific research, explores not only historical backgrounds, but also anthropological and sociological origins of all of those traditions. On the other hand, we are given instructions on varied practices, meditations of course, but also esoteric practices like sexual yoga, lucid dreaming yoga, enhancement through psychoactive plants, 
etc., etc. In all this, it seems to me that one of the aims of the author is to make it clear that the Tibetan tradition has certainly integrated parts and aspects of other traditions like Indian Hatha Yoga or Taoist energy practices, but that it is a fully independent and complete tradition in itself, which has also lent parts of itself to other traditions again. Even if the final aim of the book seems to be to show that those practices ultimately lead to Buddhist enlightenment by transforming body, breath and mind, me, who is not the connoisseur of the Eastern tradition and who is strongly rooted in Western occult practices, even I feel that the real underlying message of this book is that all is one, in a very hermetic sense, that all existence is ultimately interconnected. By indicating to you now a few of the chapter titles and subtitles of this book, I hope I can make you understand how wide the approach that Ian Baker takes here is. Here we go. Elemental Wisdom – The Varieties of Meditative Experience Enlightened Anatomy – The Yoga of Channels, Winds and Essences Numinous Passion – The Alchemy of Desire Dream Time – The Yoga of Lucid Sleep Exit Strategies – The Yoga of Transcendent Death Potent Solutions – The Yoga of Entheogenes and Elixirs And it all ends with the final chapter called Primal Radiance the yoga of innate perfection. Once again, these are only the titles of some of the chapters. There are quite a number more. Now, you may say, how can you fit all of this in 300 pages, even if you include 400 illustrations on top? Well, there you are quite right. The chapters are short, but very concentrated, most of them are not very detailed. They give you a short glimpse into the matter. They open a door to the room without fully guiding you through it. And they give practical indications for rituals and exercises. But at the same time, I find this a strength of the book. This is not a work that tries to teach you, for example, prana breathing or whatever. It will more or less show you what possibilities there are, what you can find when you start digging in the Tibetan tradition. It will maybe make you choose a couple of those possible paths and you will have to dig further on those paths with additional reading and especially a lot of additional practice. And it will inspire you with those beautiful images and a very readable interesting text. And this is exactly why I think this book needs to be presented on a show about Western traditions. 
We can all be inspired by Tibetan and Eastern practices, but we will probably not all have the time and even the need to dig into all the possibilities that there are in those traditions, even though some of them could be more than useful for our Western practice. For example, personally, I have been very interested in the chapter on breathing and the one on death. And I'm certainly going to dig further on those paths because Ian Baker has introduced me to them in a new way. Without the need of reading several books first, I've been made aware of a wonderful tradition through this historical and ethnographical approach of this book. So, to me, this book seems not to sum it up, but to open the door. And I think this is exactly what is wanted and also what is needed. Let yourself be drawn into that wonderful imagery of Tibetan yoga. Read all the chapters and then find out what can be good and a necessary enhancement for your practice. And there, carry on reading in further books. This book is called Tibetan Yoga written by Ian A. Baker, and it was published by Inner Traditions. Welcome to the third installment of Greg's Choice. I'm Greg Kaminsky, the co-host of Occult of Personality podcast at occultofpersonality.net and Chamber of Reflection at chamberofreflection.com. In today's review, I'm going to be speaking about a book that was originally published about five years ago called the Sacred Alignments and Dark Side of Sigils by Robert Podgursky. Now, I'd originally read the book and interviewed Robert for a Cult of Personality podcast. Again, this was back in 2014. And you can listen to that episode at a Cult of Personality. I'll ask Rudolph to include the link in the show notes. There are several things that really impressed me about Robert's book. The first was I felt like he had done a really wonderful job of investigating, researching, exploring, and discussing the history and various facets of Western esotericism in a way that was 
somewhat refreshing and a personal look as well as a scholarly look at it. And it was obvious that he's, you know, from reading his book that he'd been practicing magic for decades and that his research on this book clearly took many years. He says about 15, which, you know, it seems like to develop everything in the book, probably so. Uh, Some other things that impressed me about this book is Robert Podgursky has really challenged readers and himself ultimately to explore what is magic, how does it work, how do we think of it, and try to go beyond our conventional opinions and perspectives that in all honesty, have been forged by reading and by learning from others. And uh, it takes a long time to really work through this material to form opinions that are original and based on one's own personal experience. And it's clear that that Robert has done that in this book. And I love the way that he explores the the what I would call bridges, what maybe even gaps in some respects, but he builds bridges between things like Enochian magic, Austin Spare's system of sigil magic, and Eastern theories of Yantra and Tantra, as well as geomagnetism, uh, the Earth grid. Um, and the way that one can implement um, magical discoveries in their work. I think the way he explored certain philosophies was really interesting, bringing in medieval Western concepts of divine signature and talking about the ways that what he's developed here with this grid sigil is really reminiscent of tantric philosophies of yantra and mandala. So it's quite fascinating. I think that for someone who takes the time to read and really contemplate what Robert is putting forward here, it will cause one to question their previous notions of magic. And if you experiment with what Robert has brought forth with this grid sigil, I think you'll find that the experience of using it is quite interesting. I found uh, my own experimentation with it to be somewhat surprising and a bit refreshing. And I used it in a variety of different situations, Um, meditative, contemplative, uh, prayer. And I have to say, it seemed effective in every instance that I tried it. And I have to say, from my personal opinion, is a lot of the success in using 
this grid sigil goes directly to Robert's deep work in developing it, in considering its context within magical systems and considering its application to the larger context of our world and his being able to lay that out systematically in his book in well-reasoned logical thinking in a way that the reader is able to follow builds a foundation for the practical use of this sigil is again quite surprising because I'd never really encountered anything like it before. The book is, is I found to be very original, as I've said, and the grid sigil itself, uh, I found to be quite effective. So this book, the sacred alignments and the dark sides of sigils, I think was a really surprising breath of fresh air. Um, It's not just a rehash of old material, yet it does consider the historical context and explores that at great length. But it does so with an eye towards innovation and bringing forward new methods and new techniques. So in that sense, it's it's really, I'd have to say, of all of the magical texts that I've read over the years in doing the podcast, Robert's book is probably one of the most original that I've encountered. And if you're someone who is interested in magic or practicing magic or both then I think this would be a great book to pick up, especially now that it's my understanding that it's going to be coming out in a soft cover edition um, after a number of years of being mostly unavailable. So I'm glad to see that, and I recommend it. Um, I recommend Robert Podgursky's work. Uh, He does an excellent job, and I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you. Chapter three. I'm very happy to have Stephen Flowers back here on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. My audience still remembers a very nice interview we did about a year ago. And this time we talk briefly, I'm afraid, but still about a new book that was just published, The Magian Tarot. It's not the entirely new book it's a new edition of a book that has been released i think a bit over 10 years ago but it has also new parts to it and Stephen is going to tell you all about it hello Stephen. nice to have you on here hello rudolph it's uh, nice to be here thank you <laughs> yeah. so the magian tarok i 
pronounce the K because people should not yeah. miss. It's not tarot, it's tarog. And there is a reason right. to that. Maybe that's the first question I have for you. Why tarog? Well, uh, as you know, the, uh, in Italian, it's uh, tarocchi, right? Sure. That, that this old uh, pronunciation, uh, the original apparently, uh, had a K sound in there. And uh, so the uh, scholar Sigurd Agrel from the early 20th century, a Swedish scholar who wrote many things on runes and his famous Usark theory and so forth. He wrote this book uh, back in the 1920s or so and uh, about uh, the Tarot uh, the, the and the uh, Mithraic origins of, of the imagery and the way in which these images were ordered uh, in his estimation originally as based upon an originally Greek rather than Roman uh, Latin order. But mm -hmm. uh, of course we get them from an Italian, from an Italic kind of uh, uh, summation or a version and it comes into history that way but he assumed it went back further and that its ultimate origins were uh, among the uh, the symbolism of the Mith Mithra cult uh, and uh, it was active in the second, third, fourth century uh, throughout Europe and uh, that this uh, included of course uh, a lot of uh, imagery and symbolism drawn from Iranian sources. Mm -hmm. So uh, this book, which I can't claim as being my original thinking, uh, it's not my theory, it's Sigurd Agrel, but of course is written in Swedish or German, I think. I think the book was written in German. Yeah, I can't keep them straight sometimes when I read them. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the uh The book uh, well, is obscure for English-speaking uh, people. We have no access to these old books for the most part. So I uh, made a summary of it, but I also uh, put a lot of uh, new research into it, uh, bolstering his ideas uh, from my researches concerning uh, old Iranian symbolism and the history that, that we know about that has been developed in more recent decades. Mm -hmm. So uh, he, he with the, of course we know this Mithraism it disappeared at the end of the fourth, fourth century because Christianity suppressed it mm -hmm. but it was extremely widespread extremely important uh, internationally it was an international uh, intertribal you will also uh, network of uh, mainly men, almost exclusively men, uh, who were of, uh, not necessarily all leaders and all elite. It was kind of the original Freemasonry in the sense that uh, even slaves were oftentimes uh, initiates of uh, the Mithraic mysteries. And uh, sometimes a slave could be the initiator or the teacher of uh, a patrician, an emperor even. Oh, really? So uh, it was uh, egalitarian. It was, it was, and all men came together and shared in these mysteries and were in this way uh, brothers in this uh, system. And wow. so uh, for that reason, it was extremely successful and uh, widespread. 
So I know that Christianity owes a lot to Mithraism, early Christianity, but I didn't yeah. know that part also, which was also part, I believe, of early Christianity, is also coming from Mithraism. Very interesting. The most interesting thing I found was the way in which uh, when these tables are compared, that you can see how the Tarot system in its order without you know, doing strange things to the order or anything like that, uh, how it key, is keyed to certain Latin names or titles or words that just are like an ABC order. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and of course, uh, he also points out that uh, only 22 letters were used in the Roman alphabet for purposes of uh, sortilage or divination. They didn't use that. They had 23 letters, but they didn't use the Ypsilon mm -hmm. uh, because it was a Greek letter and never occurred initially in a real Latin word. So, uh, that, that's why it was had it, uh, it was rekeyed to twenty two. It has, no, in his opinion, it has nothing to do with a Hebrew origin or connection to the original Tarot. That was done later. Right. Uh, so he, he and he is again a bona fide scholar, not a not really a occultist, or he's looking at this completely from within a scholarly perspective. And then when you do this, also is. Uh, favorite subject, apparently, even though he was a Slavicist by per, uh, origin, uh, was uh, uh, to, to look at the runes. And so there's a runic key. Also, you can see how they fit with uh, the runes. And of course, using his system of reordering uh, the runes with uh, beginning with the uh, Uru's, the U U rune instead of the Feyl. No. But uh, what happened there, as a, uh, and I pointed out in this book, is uh, he, he thought that you know this was the way it originally was, and is because he, he saw these numerological correspondences. If you if you made this adjustment, then these numerological correspondences looked a whole lot more Mediterranean in their symbolism. Uh, and but uh, it has been pointed out by runic scholars greater than myself, Klaus Dudel, for example, that uh, one of the ways in which runes were uh, encoded was doing exactly that medieval work in general is shifting, just making a shift of value so that if we say A, uh, you know, A, B, C, just shift the A to the B to the C and so forth and then make gobbledygook words out of them. Right. But the that that was a way of encoding in ancient times. And so that's essentially what his Uthark theory would be. Well, you wouldn't necessarily posit an Uthark. That is, it didn't really begin with a U. It was just re-encoded numerologically for purposes. But that could explain his theory. Right. But, uh, but coming back to the Greek origins that you cite here, are we talking here about mm -hmm. the same tradition that brings us also the magical papyri uh, at the time this greek-roman egypt period or is it something yeah, more but, from uh, the classical antique right. greece yeah that uh, it was uh, it comes from that world it, he, the other subject that he was working on in this book was this uh, magical disc of pergamon is mm -hmm. a, a disc found in Pergamon, and it was uh, has all these uh, symbols on it that are many of which are Greek looking, and some of them are definitely Egyptian looking, and it's mm -hmm. divided into twenty four segments, and it's a divinatory device. 
apparently. And so he uh, analyzes, and I uh, present his analysis of these 24 segments and what the symbols are and how, again, they fit with this uh, order of 24 symbols. And so uh, it was his supposition that the original series of images were Greek, and then they were Romanized, and then in Romanizing them, the Romans uh, reduced the number of uh, terms in the system from 24 to 22, just like their alphabet reflects. Right. Okay. Well, that all sounds fascinating. Thank you, Stephen, for putting us a little bit into the picture here and making us curious, actually, to get that book and get deeper into the subject. Uh, thank you so much also for giving me the time today to speak to you because this book is brand new and I wanted to have you on very quickly. Thank you, Stephen, for your time and talking to us today. Hey, I appreciate it very much. I hope uh, it was found to be of interest. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Bye now. Bye. Chapter 4. I'm very happy to welcome on this month's episode of Ex Libris, Erika Buenaflor, who is speaking to us from California. Hello, good morning. Here is afternoon. Good morning to California. Good morning or good afternoon, Rudolf. <laughs> <laughs> so, Erika, what brought us together today is your new book, which is called Curanderismo, Soul Retrieval, that has been published recently. But before we go and talk about the book, I think it would be appropriate for our audience that we talk a bit first, maybe about curanderismo as such, but all, and then a bit about yourself. Let's start with curanderismo. Um it is certainly part, as I understand it, but I'll hear you in a second about that and in with a much more profound knowledge than I have. It is part of traditional shamanism as far as I know, but it's also a particularity within shamanism. So could you maybe, in your understanding, place curanderismo in general and within shamanism, how you would define and place it? Okay. Definitely. I'd love to. So at its most basic foundation, you can think of curanderismo as a Latin American shamanic healing practice. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a very eclectic practice. So it borrows from a lot of traditions, but its basic roots are from the indigenous peoples of the Americas. Mm -hmm. um, and that incorporates, you know, after colonization, a lot of different specialties. And, you know, we have different branches of specialties within curanderismo, um, but curanderismo, you know, it has shamanic practices, it has divination practices. We definitely always integrate magic, healing, understanding of plants, understanding of acupressure, understanding of energy centers, um, understanding of subtle energies, quantum physics, you know, because that's always, we may not call them quantum physics, but we do know that there's other realities beyond that right. meets the eye. So it's a very, mm -hmm. it encompasses a lot of different fields 
And its basic roots are with the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And after hundreds of years of different factors coming in, um, you had different different understandings of, of curanderismo, but it is definitely a shamanic healing practice that incorporates a lot of traditions. Right. Is it um, linked to Mesoamerica or is it really the, the, the whole American continent that you would also integrate into that particularity of curanderismo? Well, I don't know if, um, you know, because a lot of these terms also has to be understood that we have, they've been appropriated and we have reappropriated them. Yeah, you know, yeah, so that's yeah. also really important to understand that, you know, even the term like, for example, that, you know, because I, I draw from in, in my practice too. when I say Maya, um, I may say Maya from the Maya from the Yucatec region. Or I may also and I'll clarify this usually as the people, a lot of people, for example, in Guatemala who are Kiche, they may identify themselves as Maya because they have reappropriated that to. Um, that, that term as a way of reclaiming our history and say, okay, you're going to call us that we're now we're going to take it back and we're going to tell you what it is. Mm -hmm. well, that's, <laughs> so, that's, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's good yeah. saying that because it's, I think it's very important to say that. Absolutely. It yeah. is. It is. So native Americans, people from that region, even that terms, that's, that's also generic. And that has also been reappropriated by them too. They may not, some actually do identify themselves as curanderics, curanderos, curanderas. Um, mm -hmm. And, and some may not. Some may say, you know, I'm from my Native American tradition. And um, so it is from generally from the America. But I really has I think it really has to be what you have to ask the person, how they identify themselves and how what they're choosing to associate themselves with, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for clarifying that. Great. Um, well, that brings us exactly to the second point I was going to ask you yourself because um uh well erica buena flor that sounds very latin american to european uh, maybe i'm completely wrong but but uh, um so tell us a bit about yourself and especially also of course you in relation to your uh, art form uh, uh your form of of coranderismo and what you do what you practice and what brought you there also what's your background Definitely. So I have um, well over 20 years of practice and training as a curandera. And my background, it involves both, both field training, um, meaning that I studied with uh, curanderics in the, and when I say curanderics, I use the term X instead of A-S-O-S -S to, mm -hmm. you know, to include many, because in, in shamanism, we don't have binary genders. We really don't. Yes. It's, it's yes. shape-shifting. So it goes beyond that. So, mm -hmm. um, so my, my practice, it involves um, field training from a lot of curanderics in the Yucatec Mayan region. And I had four principal mentors that were very uh, rooted in, in their indigenous cultures. I had two mentors that they had lived in the Yucatan all their lives. They, one of them spoke very little Spanish and actually taught me some Yucatec Mayan. And then I had okay. two mentors that identified themselves as Nahua. And I also have training in academic. You know, I have a master's degree um, and I also studied in my undergrad too in graduate programs about curanderismo. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, so it's, it, I, I've taken a lot from ancient codices and I've, I've been studying this and I'm always, I'm always learning, but my, my mentors were definitely indigenous, um, identified themselves with indigenous practices. So mm -hmm. that's where a lot of my practice in, and my practice, um, it's, it's also very eclectic like me. You know, because it's curanderismo and how we became um, initiated, you know, so to speak, as curanderas or curanderos or uh, curanderics is 
it's very, it's changed. It's very much changed throughout the years. You know, back in the days you were, you were understood as having the dawn and you had a mentor um, that you, that you could access in a city, but because of modernization, a lot has changed. And when I came into being, it was, um, it's been, it's very, it's been a, it's been a path. It's been a, a journey of accepting myself and embracing my gift. And I include a lot of my own training and background in many different fields because that's what our contemporary society requires now. Yeah. It's no longer hereditary as it some maybe used to be uh, hundreds of years back that it was given from, from one generation to the next as a natural gift, wasn't it? It's, you know, I don't know if, if, you know, cause my, my great, great grandmother was also a curandera. Mm -hmm. My great grandmother was a curandera. My grandmother actually decided to go to nursing school. <laughs> right. So you see, okay. you see, you see a shift. So in some, in some communities, it was hereditary. And in some communities, the person just, they knew they had a healing gift. Mm -hmm. You know, there was mm -hmm. something that they could heal. So it, it, it's that, even that has It's not necessarily um, understood as, as it being the same in every community where it's always been like that for everyone. But generally, it, it can be hereditary, generally speaking. But there right. are, of course, some some differences with that, too. Some. Yeah. So you partly already answered my next question. But maybe if you want, you can give us a bit more detail about it. I was going to ask, is there any family background in your on your side or did it come to you just like that? So um How did you discover, let's, let's ask that way. How did you discover that you have that gift and you wanted to go further with it? Um, you know, honestly, I remember being five years old doing my first Olympia, which is shamanic cleanse. You know, I was already, and I was already like getting the herbs and, and, um, you know, working with the herbs. And I even, even made my first batch when I was younger, we had, um, bougainvilleas and I had bougainvilleas and I mixed them in with some lemon because I had a sore throat. Um, cause I, I, I had this connection with plants that plants would talk to me and tell me. And later on, I found out that bougainvilleas are exactly good for sore throats. Right. So it was, it was very much something that, but it was, um, I was also somewhat resistant to that as well, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. my, my mom and my father were the first actually in both of both sides of the family to go to college. Mm -hmm. And then they started a trend that everybody in my college, everyone in my family went to college. So You know, I, it was expected that I was going to go to college. And then when I, it, in the U.S., um, at UCLA, we, um, when I went, to, when I went to my undergrad, it was very much a lot of political um, awareness because mm -hmm. we, we wanted a Chicanx uh, studies department to study about our culture and our traditions. And we sure. actually had to do hunger strikes. We actually had to do a lot of strikes to get you know, mm -hmm. access to have those classes. So right. I went, I went to school in, involved in that, that, you know, where we'd have walkouts and um, very much involved in social justice issues. And that's how my awakening really happened with mm -hmm. social justice issues. And I was very much an activist and I, I decided to go to law school to, you know, do civil rights and change the world. And I did do that. I, I did work at nonprofits. Yeah. I did do that. But um, in 2005, I, I was um, hiking and I fell off a cliff. And I had already been mentoring for about seven years up to that. And I woke up with a skull fracture, a brain hemorrhage, left AC dislocated, two vertebrae in my back fractured. I completely shattered my coccyx, left leg I fractured in three places, right leg, knee down, all of my bones shattered, came out of my heel. Um, they told me I was not going to be able to walk again, um, you know, because I, if I did walk, that was a question mark that I was going to need some kind of assistance because I also got severe osteomyelitis, which is an infection in the bones. And I lost half the bones in my right ankle. Mm 
And they said, I'd be in pain the rest of my life. They're like, sorry, you know, your coccyx is shattered. We can't do anything about that. And it was at that point where I had to really step into my power. Because if I listened to what all the doctors were telling me, I was going to be handicapped the rest of my life. Right. And I was going to be in pain the rest of my life. And at that point, I decided to really step up. Finally, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. even though I was studying, I was questioning it as, you know, I was like, no, I'm supposed to be an attorney. This, I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm just doing this. I'm just doing this. And it was something that pulled me that I love, that I was passionate about, but it was something that I, I didn't know. At least I told myself, I didn't know why I didn't see myself doing this as right. something that I did on my day to day. So that was, and that's, that, that's a whole process of, you know, especially here in the States of decolonizing our spirituality decolonizing yeah, sure. our, our history and re- reclaiming them. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting point. We could talk hours about, we should maybe one day because, <laughs> because uh, also the European side has a different way of approaching that, which is also very important, but that's another matter for another time. But yeah. thank you for sharing that, that also very personal side of your, of your story. One last little point before we go to your book. Um, when, people in general talk about shamanism. They do not only talk about the healing part. That's a very important part. But when for, you take the classical approach, many people have through Castaneda, for example, uh, no comments about that. But I mean, just what is on people's minds is not just healing. Um, and I'm saying just by hesitating because I don't want to reduce it. Um, but is it is curanderismo the healing part of shamanism or is it just a different word or is it a different approach? How would you say? You know, it's funny because even if that I think about it now, you know, I, we have identified, we stress and I say it's a, you know, Latin American shamanic healing practice. Um, and even that maybe I'll deconstruct it. Cause we all just, we just have all accepted that. And I'm, and that's something that I'm deconstructing and I will address it as well. And I think it's because you know, for years we had inquisitions, we got, we got uh, cast aside, we got put in jails, we got, I mean, just ousted if we did any mm-hmm. kind of magic, if we mm-hmm. did any kind of sure. divination work, if we did any kind of, and that's because um, that was seen as, um, you know, pagan, you know, yeah. you're pagan yeah. or you're yeah. this, yeah. Or, and it was something that sure. needed to be ousted. So I think we really claim that because we're like, okay, we're not, we're not going to practice what we call in Spanish brujería, although we all do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got you, got you. Yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah. we, we stress that it's sure. the, the healing practice that, and that's something that we all kind of do. And that's something that, you know, I'm, I'm slowly like getting to that point. And maybe I'll write something about this later on. And I kind of have been a little bit of what that decolonizing our spirituality and what that looks like. Right. So, no, it, it doesn't just involve healing. Yeah. Okay, good. So what inspired you to write that book? Curanderismo Soul Retail, the subtitle is Ancient Shamanic Wisdom to Restore the Sacred Energy of the Soul. So already that would have been part of the last answer. So it's much more than just healing in a classical way, of course. But um, what inspired you to write that book? What brought you to, to sit down and write exactly that very book that we have in hands now? Um, I think it was definitely twofold. Um, and, and, and I say that the aims and like, what was it? One is, um, to bring back an understanding of philosophy, uh, indigenous philosophy that's called, um, in, 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 um, Nahuatl, it's called Nepatla. And that's basically the understanding that we're always in liminality, always in flux. We're always in change, which means that so are our healing processes. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and I think there was a time, um, especially here in the States where, you know, you, like people just wanted a quick fix. It's like, oh, I just want a session to heal all my karma, balance everything, just eliminate everything. And it's, it's something that I tell people, it's like, I'm going to, we're going to do some clearing work, but guess what? You're going to have to do some work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're sure. going to have to do some work and it's going to have, guess what? It's going to be ongoing. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and it's, it's something cause you know, people will think like, Oh, well, I want to keep paying for sessions or I want, you know, it's like, what do I need to do to get from A to Z? You know, it's like, okay, well, you know what, let me tell you and write a manual for you. But that means you are responsible for your healing. Yeah. 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 So Is that it, was, it, yeah, that was one, the principal reason. And then yeah, also to bring yeah. back these indigenous understandings. That was the mm-hmm. second one. <laughs> Isn't everyone always responsible that you can heal? Just as a general saying is for in any type of medicine, uh, if the patient, if we want to call him like that, is not doing his or her work, will there be any healing? What, what's your what's your opinion on that? You know, I, I think that... Um You know, because I, I look back at my own healing processes mm-hmm. and I mean, I, I can talk also comment with my clients, but I can look, I'm just going to take it as me. Right. Um, when I was still latching on, because I was still latching on, I knew at the end that I was like, I needed to just finally step into my being. And I was like, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to go back to do attorney work, but I'm going to do just social justice issues. And it was getting very heavy for me energetically. So mm-hmm. I was doing um, I was doing weekly limpias with somebody, you know, I was having them do limpias for me and yeah, I felt better after that session. But guess what? When I went back to it, I felt heavy again, you know, the, the circumstances were not being cleared. So I think that when people come to me, yeah, they'll feel better for a while, but if they don't keep up with the work, so the healing will happen and it may happen on a quantum level where you're clearing enough pathway. So it may make and help that person, that path be more graceful for them. But ultimately, yes, they have to do the work. It's like opening up a doorway, but you show the person, okay, here's the door. Here's everything you have to do. And it's a catalyst, you know, it's mm-hmm. a catalyst, but mm-hmm. they have to walk through the door, sure. you know, so it's, yeah. it's, it's helpful yeah. for them because they, they see the door. They're like, okay, I understand what I have to do. I get it. Um, but they have to do, they have to do something. And if it's just one step, that step can be monumental. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm with you. Absolutely. And um, you are using one word, one term, um, uh, often uh, the word clearing. Um, so could you maybe expand on that a little bit? Because, uh, I don't hear it that often. I think I know what you mean, but maybe for our audience, you could ex- expand a little bit on why you call that clearing? I find it an interesting uh, word to, to, to use. Um, you know, cause sometimes people come in with, uh, past life things or even current life things where there's curses, there's karma, there's mm. harm cords, there's, um, there's just energetic random inner dialogue. You know, people have thought like all these negative things and these things get, they, they, they stay in our auric fields. You know, unless mm-hmm. we clear them, unless we, we, right. we transmute them, we shift them. And those things, it's helpful when those things initially are cleared, when they're, they're nice and clear. And then, yeah, you still have to do what, what's known as, you know, neuroscience, neuroplasticity, change the way we think and refire our, our neurons and how we're thinking, because that is energy too and starts letting it. But yeah. it makes it a lot more graceful if you don't have everything around you still weighing and still, um, 
basically mimicking, you know, encouraging mm-hmm. you to, to, wire you to still think that way. It makes it more, it's, it's helpful to clear yeah. those things. And that's what I mean. Yeah. It's it, like clearing yeah. can be just a very encompassing word, very all encompassing mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Thank you. And um, who is the, the, the target audience of that book for you? Who would you want? Well, everyone, of course, but who, who would you like to see that take that book in hands and read it and, and take, take their positive energy out of it? People who are ready to do their work, you know, mm-hmm. people who are ready to, uh, you know, cause it's not, it's, it's a book too. also the understanding that maybe there's been something missing and we don't know why. We don't know what's been going on. People who are ready for a step of self-awareness, you know, because right. that's, that's also huge is that people may say, well, of course I want healing. Of course I want to be happy, but what are you willing to do with it? What are you right. willing to do for it for as it. well? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 But, but I, I think it was almost like a, a slip now, but to do something with it, once you got it, that might also be an important part. Yeah. Wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Mm. What are your upcoming plans, Erica? What, uh, what are people, should people look uh, forward to regarding your future work coming, upcoming work? Um, well, I, you know, I do uh, ceremonies all the time. I do cacao ceremonies where mm. at all the cacao ceremonies, we always honor um, the indigenous months and the understanding and how they celebrated it. Um, I do soul retrieval workshops where um, it's it's bringing a lot of these understandings back into. Um, I do. I, I'm doing at the end of this month. I'm doing a, a workshop on animal spirit guides. Every month I do. I'm doing that right. as a as, as a as a series to connect mm-hmm. with our animal spirit guides. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I'm going to do a class on medicine bundles. Right. Um, and they're the medicine bundles, but they're for divination. Um, they're for connecting um, with our ancestors. Um, there are different purposes and reasons of why we have different medicine bundles or sacred bundles. Medicine used in the, in, in the terminology more of the classical shamanism. So medicine Correct. being much wider than medicine in the medical side. Yes. Yeah, because mm-hmm. medicine is also medicine for our soul. Medicine for connecting, for understanding how to connect with plants, how to of connect course. with nature, of how to sure, connect with so. everything. It's yeah. No, I just wanted to make sure that that we that we got the right type of medicine here. <laughs> right. Any book on the horizon? Um, yes, actually, um, I have a book coming out July in 2020, The Sacred Energies of the uh, Sun and Moon. Oh, great. Well, sure, really look out for that. Well, Erica, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for spending those 20 minutes with us here on Tall Thermis. Uh, I'm really excited to have that book here. And thank you for giving us some more explanation and also some maybe for those who have not yet had it in hand and haven't yet read it to Uh, raise the interest and to get it um, of course on the website will be all the information about yourself about uh, about your website but also about the book and where to get it thank you for your time and well uh, maybe speak soon again here on the waves of thought hermes thank you thank you and this is the end of this month's ex libris episode i hope you enjoyed both our choice and what we had to say about it all. The Thoth Hermes Ex Libris episodes will return in a month on October 20 with a new exciting choice of works and events which we will be presenting to you. So don't miss it, 
it will probably be best if you subscribe to our newsletter on the homepage. This is of course all free for you. Before we return to Ex Libris, there will be two new regular episodes to be released. Already next Sunday on September the 29th, UK hermeticist, meditation specialist and author Martin Fawkes will be my guest. If you want to know now who the guest on episode 10 of the season 3 is going to be, well, you will have to become a patron and you will know before everybody else. For now, I'm saying goodbye to all of you. Thank you for tuning in. It is great to see that the Thought Hermes community is growing week by week. Thank you all for that. If you have not yet heard all previous episodes, do use the opportunity to go and listen to all of them. They are all available for free on the internet on all major podcast channels. Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.